Good morning, family. It is great to be here with you all today, and this is definitely the highlight of my week, being able to sit here and see all my sisters and brothers here. Today we're uh, doing in our, on our last reading in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 16, verses 14 to 20, and the headline in, in my edition here is The Great Commission. And a lot of us have, have read this in, in different books already, so it's, it's a similar heading. Okay, the Great Commission. Afterward, he appealed, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not be believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out, and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is God's word. All glory and honor and praise, praise be to our Lord. Good morning and thanks for being with us today. This is the last week in the book of Mark, 92 weeks, 92 weeks that we've been here. So what do we calculate that? Is that one year and nine months? Is that what the number was? Something about that. Yeah. Uh, so we come to this conclusion and just such an odd place to conclude as we started last week because it's the disputed longer ending of Mark. I'll do a little bit uh, to introduce that to you guys. Uh, that weren't here last week or maybe didn't hear uh, last week's message. As we recall that this whole sermon series has been titled, titled The Suffering King. The title of this for today is The Intercession of That King. This longer ending of Mark, uh, we have chosen to preach through it. Number one, it's in all your Bibles. Number two, it's also bracketed out as indicating that it's the longer ending and disputed ending of Mark that is not in the, in the oldest manuscripts that is there. We choose to preach through it because it's been used since at least the second century. It's been known about. And uh, for example, like famous Christians like Justin Martyr himself preached out of this longer ending. We also preach out of this longer ending because there's nothing that's contained within it with one tiny caveat that isn't also contained elsewhere in Scripture. So we've chosen to go through that so that you guys would hear this. 
hear the words that are here as we finish out the as we finish out this gospel. Uh, hear what is to be said there. Hear what we're going to find in other places in the scripture about what is said here. It does create some sort of a. It's difficult to preach through uh, from this from the fact that number one, the readers of the original gospel of Mark didn't have these words. This was added by somebody else somewhere along the time with that effort, as we talked about last week, to harmonize this gospel with the other gospels. They didn't necessarily like the clipped ending of Mark where it ends in chapter 8 where it says that the women, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You can see how a person reading this that would know the other gospels where these words and this, this, this longer ending are taken from, how they would see that and say, man, I just need to clean this up a little bit. I need to bookend this a little bit more. I need, to, I need to show what the other Gospels did. From a place not of nefarious means, but just because they wanted it to sound more like the other ones. It's obvious that the, the person that added this longer ending was familiar with the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, excuse me, Matthew Luke, and John. Because that's where these things are drawn, mainly drawn from. We will see today that there's some, uh, there's some drawing that comes from some of the epistles too. So the letters that were written. So we can, we can kind of vector in on the time frames also. We can see that the, the gospels and the epistles were written at a very early date as witnesses to the risen Lord and the foundation of the church. Last week, we had spoken about the disbelieving or doubting disciples. Disciples who had heard from both Mary Magdalene and then Cleopas and his traveling companion that they had seen the risen Savior. When they had spoken with Mary, they refused to believe what she said. They refused to believe that she had seen the risen Lord. When Cleopas and his friend came back, they had been traveling towards Emmaus. We can read about that. The longer, the, the, the detailed Lucan account of that in, in Luke's Gospel. When they had encountered the Lord on the way to Emmaus, we remember that Jesus came up to them and said, what are you discussing? And the incredulous nature, they said, where have you been? How could you not know what has happened in Jerusalem these days? That this Jesus, great indeed and teaching, had been crucified by the Jews. That he talked with them and explained the prophecies out of the scripture about himself and then revealed himself to them while they were eating. They stopped their journey towards Emmaus and immediately came back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. We could envision them pounding on the door where the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews, it tells us. We could envision them pounding on that door, let us in, we have this news to tell you. And yet they also refused to believe what Cleopas and his friends said. We talked about how this was falling within the witness 
of the Scripture that they had three witnesses here to verify something that occurred. We know from the Old Testament that to have those, that number of witnesses is to see the, what they are testifying to is true. Yet they didn't believe. They had to see with their own two eyes. They had to see the marks on the hands and the feet and the side. They had to be with Jesus themselves or they wouldn't believe. Which leads us to verse 14 of Mark chapter 16. 14, it says, afterward, so after those events that occurred where the witnesses had testified to the disciples, after, afterwards, he appeared to the eleven. Judas is gone. Judas is dead. Judas has hanged himself. It tells us that he was hanging there long enough that when it fell from the rope into that field, that he burst open, the Scripture tells us. Judas was not one of the believers. Judas had been with them, acting like a believer, but was not one of them. He would be one of those that John would speak of, that looked like one of us, but left us, which demonstrated that he wasn't one of us. That he never was one of us. Judas, who was more interested in the money than the message. Judas that thought that some sort of a political upheaval would bring about the salvation of Israel, not the true salvation that they needed, which was the salvation from the punishment of their sin. It says he appeared to the eleven. This would be in different form that he appeared to the eleven. Jesus didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't knock on the door, didn't send a message to let the door be open, didn't call within and say, open the door and let me in. But it says that he appeared to them while they were reclining at the table. Remember the low tables that they have in the Mideast that they eat off of generally leaning back on pillows or whatnot, but he appeared there amongst them. Jesus in more real form than any of us are. Jesus in as real and as physical as you can be, not bound by earth here. We remember that the tomb itself, that the stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the women See in. Jesus was no longer bound by these things as they were. He appeared there with them, amongst them, suddenly. I don't know what that's like. I don't think any of us know what this is like to see someone suddenly appear there in front of us. We see this. In Luke, I think it's up there on the board. Luke chapter 24. And we start in verse 36 where this picks up from. It says, this is that retelling of Luke. Remember what I said, whoever wrote the longer ending apparently knew these other Gospels, had read them or had heard them. It says, while they were telling these things, 
While the disciples were discussing the events, while they were discussing what they had heard, He Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So the hopeless disciples, the ones who refused to believe the witnesses that they had occurred, Jesus is suddenly there saying, Peace be with you. Jesus in a different form, not in the bloodied, crucified Savior form, but now in the risen form, in the resurrected body of our Lord and Savior. They certainly know immediately who He is, so we can assume from this, it says in there that we, when we are resurrected, we will be like Him. In other words, we will be recognizable of who we are. People will know who we are in that resurrected form. Like they know who Jesus is. They weren't, star- they weren't surprised to see a form in front of them they didn't recognize. Verse 37 says, But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. You see, spiritualism at this point in time is not out of the ordinary. Everybody believed in spirits back in this point in time. You had all sorts of pagan religions that believed in spirits. You had Jews themselves that believed in spirits. We can't fault them for thinking that at the moment. We can fault them for the fact that they did see Lazarus risen from the dead. But maybe the bloody, beaten, bruised Jesus dead on the cross was too much to think that this man could be resurrected. It says in verse 38, it says that, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Do doubts arise in your hearts? Didn't I tell you that this is what would occur? Don't you remember the words that I had said to you previously? You know who I am by what I've done. You should. You said you believed. Peter, you even confirmed who I was. Yet here you are, doubting what you're seeing. This man suddenly standing in front of him. The truth the way, the truth, and the life standing physically in front of them. Why are your hearts troubled? Don't you see in verse 39 of Luke, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Don't you see my hands and my feet, the signs and the scars of the new covenant? The one that I enacted just a few nights ago. They're right here. It is me. I am the one. I am the one that Cleopas and friend and Mary Magdalene testified to. I am the one who, when the women looked in the tomb, said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? It just occurs to me that John Weathersby has has been to Israel, and you can go to the... You can go to where they say the, uh, the tomb of Jesus is at, the sepulcher of Jesus, and it seems to me, it seems silly to me. Why do you want to go and look at a tomb where he'd be laid at? Why would you look for the living amongst the dead? 
Why would you look there to see where they had laid the body? What difference does it make? Why do you care about the cross? The cross is the sign of the covenant. But why would you care to have a piece of the cross like that has been proffered about for centuries? Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? And here he is, fully alive, saying, look, my hands, my feet. Look at the scars. It is I. This is no spirit, in verse 39. For, look at me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, if we remember the title of this, which is intending to show you the intercession of the king, Jesus is the king and he is interceding at this point in time for them, for the witnesses they didn't believe. Because they didn't believe the witnesses, Jesus has come to show them the truth. See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Their immediate reaction in verse 41, and we will get back to the verses in Mark, the truncated verses in Mark. In verse 41, it says, While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before him, before them. This is Jesus alive, resurrected in a new form, in a resurrected body. Showing the signs of the covenant, showing the signs of who He is, showing them the signs that the covenant, the new covenant is in place and is immovable. Is The new covenant is, is unchangeable. The new covenant is from God. The risen Savior in their midst. Don't be afraid. Look, it is Me. The one who told you that would rise again. He eats. The truth is that he is alive. And as that Greek term is in morphe, a new form. A new resurrected form. A form in which Peter, James, and John had a slight view of on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord of life is alive. Now, if we turn back to Mark 16, verse 14. I stopped at the semicolon, I believe it is in your your scripture, and it says, and this is only contained here, only contained in the book of Mark, and maybe we can get behind some of whoever added this into the gospel of Mark, of what they were at. We don't want to do too much speculation. And it says, and he, Jesus, reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen Him after He had risen. Only found here, and isn't it fascinating when we think about this, that Jesus is reproaching them in this passage, in part B of this verse, He is reproaching them for exactly what they will need to do when they go out and proclaim the Gospel. They will be the witnesses that will testify to the risen Jesus who the people, like ourselves, will not see. They were not given the gift of first view of the resurrection. 
Mary Magdalene had that. The ones who were with him day and night for three years weren't the first to see the resurrected Christ. They were the first to receive the testimony of the resurrected Christ. Now, Jesus in His intercession here, showing up there to show them who He is, we get this image of that, that, that He has reproached them. Why didn't you believe these witnesses? There was more than enough with regard to Jewish law. Why were you so hopeless? We talked about in Sunday school class today that when we have Christian hope, it isn't the wringing of hands that, I, that maybe something will happen. Our Christian hope in the risen Savior is one that it has not only already happened, but it is happening as we speak. Blessings upon blessings. Hope upon hope. No doubt within that hope. Any doubt that we have comes from a place of disbelief that is within us, not within our risen Savior. Jesus solidifies this by appearing in human form, in fully resurrected form, showing them the signs of the covenant, eating with them here. You should have believed the ones who told you because it was true. You will be the ones testifying to seeing me and touching me and watching me eat to the world out there. I've already told you the foundation of the church will be upon you. You are the ones who will do this. You will be teaching to people that to some degree might be like yourselves were. Disbelieving. Verse 15 tells us, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Go into the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Don't just go around the block or down to the marketplace, but I'm sending you out into the world to proclaim my name. To proclaim the risen Savior. I'm sending you out in my stead to do these things. You are to go out and to witness to others what you have seen. This is the retelling of Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Anyone who has been around some of our uh, discipling or discipleship uh, the Sunday school classes or discipleship meetings that we've been having will recognize these verses. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 28, if you wish to turn there, it says, Go therefore, and we'll stop there. Go therefore, that Greek is very specific. We sometimes get a flattened version of that in our English. The Greek says, as you are going. Not to go and do something, but as you are going, do these things. As you are going about in your day, do these. what is coming next. It says, go therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are so many places to go with this passage. As you are going, it's in the aorist imperative. In other words, this is a declaration, an order, a command of what you're supposed to do. There's no option. There's no part B. There's no uh, other thing you can do. This is the thing you are to do. Go and make disciples. Or as you are going, in everything that you are doing, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are to build the body of believers. They are to build the church. We are the result of what they did back then through Christ. We are the result of what they did so long ago with Christ working with them, it will say in Mark, in what it says in verse 20 here, always. Not of their own accord, but Christ in them, the Holy Spirit in them, guiding them and instructing them. Interceding in their lives for them. It is a must-do. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, it says this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. So they are to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus, the risen Savior, the way, the truth, and life, the only way to salvation. Two types of people we've talked about many times before. There's the saved and the damned. There's those that are saved to eternal life and those that are condemned to eternal punishment. Hell is a real place with real people suffering real punishment. It isn't an abstract idea. It is the thing that Jesus talked most about. We should pay attention to that. He sets it forth here. He who has believed and has been baptized. Now the key here is that baptism isn't magic water. Baptism doesn't give you something that the Catholic Church would indicate that it does. That they sprinkle magic water. I unfortunately uh, witnessed this at one point in time. It made me sick to my stomach. Where they sprinkled water on somebody and they said, you're in. That was the words that they said. It was embarrassing. It isn't the way it works. Baptism is that public confession of what you believe. It isn't magic water that saves you. There's nothing magical about it. In a couple weeks, we're going to do baptism here. The people that are going to be baptized will confess that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. That they've repented of their sins. That they believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not magic water but they will descend in the water in death and rise up again to demonstrate their new life in Christ. Jesus is saying here that they are to go out and instruct and disciple people that they believe. And that those people that believe will be baptized. And make the public confession of that. Here's the plug for baptism. If you are not one of those three and you desire to be baptized or want to talk to us about it, please see us. Please see myself or the other John here to talk about that. That will be on the 22nd of August. 
is when we're doing it uh, in, the, in the short term right here. Those who have believed and have been baptized will be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Those who have heard the gospel and have disbelieved it shall be condemned. Those who have heard the gospel and have doubted who Jesus is, have doubted the witness of those, shall be eternally damned. Of their own accord, of their own doubt, of their own decision. Because they've chosen to disbelieve. They've chosen to disbelieve the good news. The great news. The finished work of the Savior. They've refused the hope that is true and is real and is finished and is happening. It is the thing that we can hold on to, which is the anchor of our soul. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The anchor of our soul that penetrates behind the veil that we are locked into through Jesus that we cannot be separated from. That those that deny what Christ has done on the cross are not only worthy of eternal damnation, but will be eternally damned. To deny the Son is to deny the work of the Godhead, of the triune God, and is to put yourself in eternal suffering and damnation. If I as a believer knew that behind that door there was a pit that fell for a hundred feet, and that if you went through that door, you would fall into it, if I don't warn you about that and said, hey, whatever, if you want to go through the door, just don't knock, whatever. What, what does that say about me as a believer? But if I know that the, that the case for you is that you will be either in eternal bliss with glorifying God or in eternal damnation and punishment, I certainly better tell you. I certainly better make it clear. Jeremiah, the watchman on the wall, right? This is Jeremiah, right? I think so, yeah. Jeremiah, where he says, the watchman on the wall. If you see the enemy coming and don't warn the city, then the blood of those who are killed is upon you. These disciples are sent out into the world to give this message of eternal life, of the living water that is given. The living water that never runs out. If this isn't up there in the Scripture, turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse... Check this out. It's just awesome. This is the message. This is the gospel message. We see it in a short form here in Psalm chapter 1. Verses 1, 2, and 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is the person who believes in the gospel, in the hope. An unmoved tree. That the water is constantly there. That there is never a drought. That there is never a doubt of what will happen. That you are firmly affixed and planted in the being and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. That means to deny that is to be in eternal hell. Where you will be condemned by what you have chosen to disbelieve. Verse 17. 
Just think about this. Jesus has interceded, has been an intercessory agent who has been incarnate. He has interceded into the world for this reason. To do what we couldn't do for our benefit. Verse 16, or excuse me, verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. And in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, I don't know what sort of experience any of you have with other churches or charismatism or Pentecostalism. I don't know if you have family members like I do that practice such things. Uh, Toes will be gladly stepped upon right now. I just say right now, Pentecostalism is an aberration of anything of Christianity that it should be. It is man-centered and it is godless in what it does. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, that's the way it is. It is man-centered. We're going to go right into speaking in tongues. It is one of the most false things that could possibly be out there. This is a thing that was unknown in the church until the late 1800s. There is 1800 years of church history where there is no knowledge of speaking in tongues. There is nothing about it in the Scripture. When they say it here, when they talk about it here, it is for a specific time, in a specific place, for the building and the foundation of the church of God. And it happens in the book of Acts, and it happens with regard to foreign languages being understood. The Scripture in Acts talks about glossia and dexlexia, which both refer to foreign languages that are understandable by people that understand those foreign languages. It is not this false gibberish that occurs at a given time when somebody can specify it in these Pentecostal charismatic churches. It is for a specific time and for a specific place that shows the judgment of God upon a specific people. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. I'm sorry if I'm a little emotional about this, but it just drives me insane, this stuff. The Bible is enough, people. You don't need these crazy things that you need to do. The Bible is enough. You need nothing else. It tells you who your Lord and Savior is and who and what your Lord and Savior does. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you. This is a judgment against Israel. Will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as an eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you will not understand. Speaking in foreign tongues is a judgment when it occurs on the day of Pentecost. When it occurs in Acts chapter 2, is a judgment against the nation of Israel that shows that since they have not received the message, the Gentiles will. It is not this foolishness that occurs at Joyce Meyer concerts that occurs in these churches right now as we are speaking as some sign that somebody has received the Spirit. It is false and godless. I'm going to tell you that right now. And I dare any of them to come in here and tell me differently. 
Show me in the scripture where it continues. Because it ends. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. One of the many places it ends. We see the confirmation that it's in foreign tongues with Cornelius. That beautiful story of Cornelius who is a faithful God follower even though he's a Gentile. His prayers go up before the Lord as incense before the Lord. Sends an angel to him. Go seek Paul. Or excuse me. Go seek Peter. Peter, uh, Peter will come to you. Peter comes to his house and what happens to those Gentiles in Cornelius' house? They speak in a foreign language which looks just like what happens in Acts chapter 2 which shows the confirmation that the Spirit has come upon them too. That is all it is for. It is not this craziness that goes out there today. And I pray that none of you have ever experienced it. It is embarrassing to see people roll around on the ground and mumble stuff. Horrible. It's horrible and it is not Christianity. That being said, and I do need to keep an eye on time for this. Tongues. Known known languages. And if you want to look it up, 1896, the holiness movement that occurred in North Carolina, you'll, you'll find out some, uh, some events that happened down there. Uh, you don't need to look that up. Now we run into this part in verse... Uh, in verse 16, or chapter 16, where it says, you know, we saw that they cast out demons. And as we talked in Sunday school class, the casting out of demons slowly and slowly and slowly becomes less and less and less. After Jesus ascends, there's less demonic activity. But it does occur on occasion that is in there. But they will do this. Again, this is all foundational work of the church, right? Jesus has interceded into the world he has now risen again. He has, inter, he has intercessed into this inner sanctum where the disciples are to show who He is, to show them the signs of the covenant that the work is done. Okay, He has, he has come in the place because they did not believe, they did not believe the witnesses, so here I am. Now I'm sending you forth to do this. You're going to be the intercessors for me now to be the witnesses out there for me. Okay? This is what you are going to do in my stead. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to speak in tongues. All these things are going to be are going to confirm where you came from. You as the apostles, right now, you is the closest to me. The eleven that are left, we're going to add Matthias here soon, right? And this is the only. This is the only of the longer ending. This is this is the strangest part right here. Verse eighteen. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink. Deadly poison, it will not hurt them. The only place you can really find this is Acts chapter 28, verses 3 through 6. That is Paul after the shipwreck. He's gathering sticks, and he picks one up, and he gets bit by a viper, it says. The men he was with, the pagan men he was with, automatically assumed that getting bit by the viper was a sign of judgment. That Paul was a murderer, and that's why he was bit by the viper, because it was the sign of the gods were, were, were doing that to him. But then when he didn't die, they even thought that Paul himself was a god. Small g. Was a god. And he had to correct them on that. This is the only place where we see this at. We can assume with whoever was the writer here, this gives us the early date of the writing of, of, of pretty much all of the New Testament, that they were familiar with this story too. 
They wanted to show what the signs of the apostles were. That you could see that the apostles were uh, the exclamation point of who the apostles were by these things that they did. Again, these are non-continuing gifts. We see right after that that they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And we know that that occurred. We see that throughout the book of Acts. Even to the point that one of the handkerchiefs or a piece of cloth that Paul had when they touched it, they were healed. Remember, not from Paul. Not because of who Paul was. Not because of who Peter was. Not because of who any of them was. But because of the Lord working in them. Uh, intercessor, uh, intercessing through them. right, Demonstrating who they are. We do, unfortunately, just uh, just to finish up on the on the on the on the, the snakes, the healing, and whatnot like this. We do see still today primitive Methodists are one of the practice uh, the practitioners of the of the snake handling. Uh, you see, you still see it. I had a friend of mine who did who lived with them for like six months just to do do a study, uh, do a study on them. You know what they do with the handling of the they generally handle rattlesnakes down in uh, Appalachia. You'll see it. In the backwoods of, uh, of uh, uh, West Virginia and Virginia, you'll see that that they actually do that. And it comes. This is the place it comes from. This is why this is why it's there. And unfortunately, you have people that die every year from it because they die because they've mishandled the scripture. They die because they've mishandled what the what God's word is, uh, which is uh, truly, truly, truly unfortunate. Uh, it's very, very sad. Anytime that the people go beyond what God's word says, they get into trouble. Right? Anytime they try to interpose things on God's word uh, that isn't there, uh, anytime they try to, you know, this is in our day and age, we try to interpose the fact that, that, that God affirms homosexuality. He absolutely does not. He does not affirm homosexuality. There's male and female, that's it. He doesn't affirm changing of gender. There's male or female, that's it. Uh, he doesn't affirm any partiality that is occurring out there right now and today. Like when you're here with critical race theory, uh, the quote-unquote wokeness and stuff, God does not affirm partiality. What God affirms is that we recognize how sinful we are and we seek him for salvation. We seek what Jesus has done for salvation. Because that work was so great on the cross, that means that if you don't accept what was done there and you fall in these patterns of human desires that you will be eternally damned because of it. Because you have decided that you can reach up and take the crown off God's head and put it on yourself. And you could be your own God. That's what eternally damns people. So we must mark guard against this false teaching that occurs that is out there. And I hope you see there, you know, when you look at this longer any of Mark, and you can see even the way that I am working through these passages, you can see it's sort of disjointed. It doesn't flow like the rest of Mark. It feels like we're, we're, we're clipping pieces out and they've been kind of pasted on and done. Now it's all within the Scripture, but you can feel the clipped nature of what is going on here, that it just doesn't fit with the, the whole narrative of Mark, the way if we think about the sweep of Mark through there, it's, it's, a beautiful, it's beautiful the way it is about the suffering king. 
that comes in there. And the suffering king that goes to the cross and, it, and is alive at the end. It's just a, it's, it's beautiful the way it's written. And this section just kind of, you know, we're, we're just kind of plugging things onto it and bolting them on, you know, and generally to make somebody feel, to make it seem like the other Gospels. Nonetheless, they're all there. So we see in verse 19, So then when the Lord Jesus had spoke to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is directly drawn from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the, in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, I will make the enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a great psalm. It's a royal enthronement psalm. That's where it's taken from. We have the picture here too of the divine picture of the Son of Man. That Son of Man is, a, is the absolute divine image of Jesus. We catch that from Daniel chapter 7, where it has the picture of the Son of Man, and then we catch it again in Revelation, that picture of the Son of Man, who Jesus is, the one who will judge the living and the dead. And it says here, that ascension into heaven, the interesting part about it is, the apostles didn't see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. They assumed that the prophecies, or I should say they knew the prophecies were correct, that that is where Jesus is at at this point in time. But there is only one that we know of that saw Him there. Stephen. Stephen saw Him there right before He died. Saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's Acts chapter 7, verse 53, I believe. And then these words, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Jesus was constantly interceding for them. Jesus constantly intercedes for us. And by that, I mean He's working within us through the Holy Spirit. Constantly doing this for us, confirming what we know, what we believe, what we tell people. Look to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. It says this, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, the funny thing was, I wasn't even thinking about that when we talked about eternal damnation, but right, when we neglect the salvation that was given, damnation is what comes. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Verse 4, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. That the Spirit testifies and validates what the Lord has done on the cross. That we see in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, since He always lives to make intercession for them. We see Jesus has interceded upon the earth. He did not stay with the Father, but came incarnate, enfleshed, to do this work to mediate on our behalf, to intervene on our behalf, to petition on our behalf, 
to entreaty the Father on our behalf and to do it successfully and completely and finishedly. He did it. Done and over with. He interceded with the disciples there and their disbelief. You see, they were not alone and neither are we. Look at uh, John chapter 16, verse 5 through 15. John Weathersby told me we can't go another week, so we have to finish today. He said 92 weeks, that's it. That's all we have. John chapter 16. Verse 5, it says, But now I am going, this is Jesus speaking, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus always interceding on our behalf. It is not up to our own abilities. It's what he does. Verse 8, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. <laughs> Words spoken to them that they wouldn't remember until they saw Him again. And concerning judgment because the ruler of the world has been judged, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, and He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Consistently in our lives, never without us. That's why it's foolishness to pray for believers that the Spirit will be with us today. As believers, the Spirit is with us automatically. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does in our place. Remember, mediator, intervener, petitioner, entreatier. Interceding for us. Intercessory prayer for us at all times. And when he does this, John chapter 17, verse 17, in the midst of the true Lord's prayer, that is his prayer, he says this, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. You see, this is what you need. You don't need to be falling down the floor, rolling around, mumbling things that make no sense to anybody, except for the people that lie that say they make sense to them. Uh, you don't need to handle snakes. You don't need to lay hands on people and think that you have the gift of healing because any healing that comes comes from the Father, comes from God. He chooses to heal who He chooses, chooses to heal. There are no gifted healers anymore in this world. You need the Scripture because the Scripture will sanctify you in truth. The Scripture will tell you who your Savior is, who your Lord is. 
It will also tell you the consequences of denying who your Lord is. Repent and believe. So our suffering king that this series started out is now the enthroned king. The one who sits on the throne of Hebrews chapter 7.25 entreating for us, interceding for us, praying for us. Eternity is coming. Steve Lawson would say death is looming for all of us. We need to make certain where we stand on the issue of Jesus, of that suffering King, of that interceding King. We need to know for certain. We need to take it seriously. We need not to assume Because I will tell you this, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I think I'm a Christian, you're probably not. I think you need to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christ follower. What it means to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because there's no halfway to Jesus. It's either He is your Lord and Savior or He's not. So please, 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 don't leave here without knowing that. Trust that we are never left on our own. Trust that the Spirit is with us. The Spirit is there to guide us. The Spirit is there to guide us when we read the Scripture, to understand Scripture, when we are, de- when we are talking with other Christ followers, to be with us. Not giving a word that is different from what the Scripture says, but confirming what the Scripture says. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. doesn't testify to other things. testifies to Jesus and God's Word. So as we leave this study in Mark today, I would hope that it's been edifying for all of you that have been here, that have listened to it, that have a new appreciation for this Gospel of Mark that was sent to the persecuted church in Rome. That was given. Uh, that that was that was given to believers that were living and dying under persecution. That they knew who their Savior was without ever having seen or touched their Savior, the same as we are. That we can trust in God's word and we can trust in the hope that is given to us in God's word, in the witness that is given to us. The Scripture is all you need. You don't need any other types of confirmation from speaking in tongues or any of that other, other, other nonsensical stuff that people proffer about today. You don't need a Todd White, if you know who that is. You don't need a Kenneth Copeland. You don't need any of that stuff. That's also godless and satanic in its nature. I'll just tell you, that's just the way it is. I would gladly speak with them and encourage them to know their Lord and Savior for for real, as opposed to the things that they practice right now. But you can trust in this, that that God in His intercessory work, as I come to the very end of this, His intercessory work for us has provided His Scripture for us, that when we believe that the Spirit is with us, that will help us to understand the Scripture, will help us to know and and be confident in our salvation, and know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Let's all bow our heads. Uh, Father, uh, there, keep us humble.
a dangerous prayer to pray because man that humility is can be that humility can be hard to bear at times but keep us humble keep us in your in your will keep us obedient to you let us know your will god through the scripture let us trust in the word that you've given to us let us trust in the witness that has been brought to us through your apostles through you father let us know your son deeper and greater more and more every day Encourage us to be in the Scripture. If we can't read a chapter, let's just read a verse every day. Let us know that you, that your hope is sure and true and steadfast. It is that anchor of the soul that is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. That we know that the only way of truth and life eternal is through Jesus, confessing Jesus as our Lord and Savior and repenting of our sins. Please be with us throughout this day and throughout our lives. Give us the courage to tell others about Jesus and to disciple them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please, uh, please stand and join us in singing as we close the service.